The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, two horrific ghost train wrecks in Kansas produced surge of baby births from out of nowhere in Topeka Hospital Maternity Ward. Hmm. Agents of Change versus Agents of Debit Cards. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Tim Akers, author of Nightwatch, a contemporary fantasy novel that's a whole lot of fun. It's about a guy who goes to a renaissance fair to get his SCA battle on, uh, but finds himself confronted with a very real dragon. And there he is in a night suit, ready to fight. And from there, we find out about a secret organization that needs fellows like him with the ancient skills to hunt ancient beasts. It's good stuff. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. There is indeed a November ebook sale from Bain eBooks. It's the Bain eBooks Leap into Leaden sale. Of course, we're talking about Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's wonderful Leaden Universe series. Get $2 off on Accepting the Lance, which is regularly $6.99. It's going to be $4.99 all through November, plus $1 off on all Bain Leaden Universe series ebooks, every one of them available wherever Bain ebooks are sold. The sale runs until the end of November. So stock up on Leaden Universe ebooks, especially that Accepting the Lance special, $2 off, and get ready for Trader's Leap. The new Leaden Universe novel, debuting in December 2020. Hey, the blustery November winds have ushered in some great new Bain hardcovers and trade paperbacks at booksellers everywhere. First, there's 1637 No Peace Beyond the Line by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. It's 1637 in the Caribbean. Commander Eddie Cantrell and his ally and friend, Admiral Martin Tromp, start the year with some nasty surprises for Imperial Spain, which is determined to possess the new black gold of the Americas. Now the battle for the new world has begun in this great alternate history series, and it is a fight to the finish. Also out in November, The Serpent Daughter by D.J. Butler. Sarah Calhoun has taken the serpent throne, but she may be dying. Forces are allied against her from without as well as from within at Cahokia. To survive, Sarah must enact the ancient rite that will propel her beyond mortality itself and lend her strength to fight. Finally, at Booksellers in November is Agent of the Imperium by Mark Miller. This is big science fiction. Jonathan Bland is a decider. In the service of the Empire, he has killed more people than anyone in the history of humanity. But now he has to save a hundred times as many by coming back and being reinstantiated as an agent of the Imperium. 1637, No Peace Beyond the Line by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. Serpent Daughter by DJ Butler. 
An Agent of the Imperium by Mark Miller are now available at booksellers everywhere. Give thanks in November and get some good reading. Hey, want to welcome Tim Akers to the podcast. How's it going, Tim? Pretty well, sir. How are you? Um, pretty good here in uh, Bainland. Tim Akers grew up in rural North Carolina, the last in a long line of Scottish bankers, newspaper editors, and tourist trap barons. He moved to Chicago to pursue his passion for apocalyptic winters, tornadic summers, and traffic. He stayed for the hot dogs. So um, Hot dogs are good. Yeah, that's one of the uh, one of the selling points. Well, it's the uh, the hog capital of the world. I understand. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. according to some poems. Yeah, according to some um, poets. Yeah, uh, it's funny actually. Like everyone talks about Chicago pizza, which I like just fine, but I'm really more of a Chicago hot dog guy. Like uh, we, whenever we travel somewhere else and come home, uh, our first meal is always Portillos, which is pretty much the most the most Chicago thing you can possibly eat. Chicago sausage. And you grew up in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, I grew up in Western North Carolina, small town uh, near Asheville, um, and uh, came to Chicago for college. Uh, didn't really intend to stay, especially after my first winter, but uh, got married, bought a house, developed inertia, uh, and sort of kept kind of kicking around the idea of, of getting out of here, but. Uh, it's just never, never happened. So, and I, it's been good being here. Um, I've been able to, the college I went to has a, a, a fantasy writing group for students. And I've been able to sort of mentor that group and provide them a, a business perspective that I think a lot of uh, young aspirational writers need. Uh, it's, it's, it's too easy to be like, rah, rah, re, write anything. I can do anything. And they, they really kind of need a little bit of like, here's how publishing works. Uh, here's how to actually plot a novel. Um, I often joke, I have an English degree, but uh, I had to unlearn everything I learned in college to be able to write a book that someone would want to read. Uh, and so I, I try to bring that into it as best That's I cool. can. And you told me the name of it was uh, the, the Winklings. Yeah, the Winklings. Yeah, the college is Wheaton College. And uh, they have a, an archive on site called the Wade Center, the Marion, Marion C. Wade Center, uh, that has a lot of Tolkien's archival materials. It has the desk where um, The Hobbit was written. It has the original wardrobe from The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, uh, literally like the wardrobe that was in uh, Jack's house. And so there's a lot of like Tolkien uh, fandom on site. And yeah, the group is called the, the Winklings, the Wheaton Inklings. Yeah. Well, that's super cool. And uh, you know, it must be uh, a bit of uh, inspiration seeping over to you magically, perhaps. To, uh, yeah, yeah. It's why I went to this college. I, I didn't really, you know, take advantage of it while I was there. But uh, it's, it's how I ended up in Chicago. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we could talk about it when we talk about the book. Maybe it characterized and created you. Um, yeah. From maybe Tolkien's wardrobe. I mean, uh, yeah, C.S. Lewis's wardrobe made you yeah. into uh, the guy that wrote this book, which is Nightwatch by Tim Akers. There's two or three of them, yes. Um, which is uh, now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, it's a cool book. Uh, we sort of, uh, on the back, our first, our, our headline is Men in Black at the Ren Fair. 
Um, you want to like explain what that means and why uh, it's, it's so telling a description of the book? Sure. Uh, well, when you, when you write a book, one of the things you have to figure out how to do is how to explain the book um, to people who have at least a passing interest. And so the, the Men in Black at, at, at the Ren Fair uh, was one of the, the original pitch ideas that I sort of came up with as I was developing the book. Um, basic idea is that there is a, a mythic world that's overlaid on top of our world. Uh, and the, the various monsters, dragons, trolls, demons and stuff, um, reality bends itself to prevent mundane humanity from being uh, driven insane or bothered by, by these, these mythic creatures. And so you have, for example, a dragon, but rather than being a dragon in the real world, uh, it, he ends up as a, a suburban tax attorney with a girlfriend in Canada uh, who does too much CrossFit and just kind of, frankly, kind of an asshole. Uh, and that's, that's how reality adjusts itself. Um, and people are able to interact with that mythic world by, um, by becoming sort of uh, their own mythic identity. Uh, there's a lot of gaming stuff in this. There's a lot of Ren Fair, a lot of SCA in it. Um, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it, it's in a way, it's, there's a certain class or sort of person who is able to cross that boundary. Mm -hmm. and or or whether they want to or not they're not necessarily trying to do it um and it, in a way like i i think when we were talking about this at, at one point we we're it's like charles williams from the inklings his idea of, of like platonic forms that come into the world and start doing right. stuff um yeah and it's really like all of myth you've got a huge universe that you've uh, sort of conceived here yeah literally any mythology that exists could potentially exist in the world of myth of, of Nightwatch. Um, th this book focuses on sort of fantasy mythology, but there are references to, um, you know, steampunk mythology, uh, diesel punk mythology. Uh, I don't know so much about like, do we, do we do the science fiction thing too? Do we have cyberpunks? Any, anything slash punk uh, could potentially exist in, in the Nightwatch world. Um, but Nightwatch focuses on, uh, on the fantasy ideals, the fantasy tropes. Um, which is how John ends up going in via, you know, he's there on the cover. Uh, he ends up going in via Renaissance Fair uh, in the middle. You, of, you uh, talk about that like you've had experience. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. At such places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little. Um, there, in college, there was no SCA near me, uh, no Society for Creative Anachronism near me. So a bunch of friends and I basically did our own thing. Um, there were probably 40 of us and we formed our own little noble houses and uh, we would um, dress up and do feasts. Uh, and we had, you know, assassination games and noble intrigue. And then we would, we'd take PVC and duct tape and pipe insulation and make swords and just beat the living crap out of each other uh, in a, you know, tournament style thing. And then we would just, you know, get together in the theater and just, you know, get 30 of us on the side and then just wreck each other. Um, that was a lot of fun. You know, those are good days. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, was, was heavily involved in this stuff and uh, going to the local Renaissance Fair, which is up in uh, Wisconsin on, outside Chicago. Um, now, going up to, to that once a year was kind of a, a pilgrimage for this group. We would we would, you know, get all dressed up and drive up there. And part of the fun of it was like stopping at the gas station about halfway up and 
rural Wisconsin and freaking out the mundanes. That was always, always a good time. There's, um, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of that sort of culture and there's a lot of, uh, of gaming sort of feel to, to the book. Um, maybe just sort of describe the, the milieu before we talk about the characters of, of what, um, what's going on. All right. Our main character's name is John Rast. Um, right. How does he, I don't know, maybe start talking about the, uh, the very beginning and he encounters this dragon you've mentioned, Kratchek, uh, who's also a tax accountant. And since it happens in the first, uh, in the first chapter, it's not really a spoiler. Set, sure. set up what happens and how, um, how, yeah. maybe read your first sentence. Yeah, oh, sure. So great. the first sentence, the absolute first sentence, which is very early on in, in, you don't always write the first sentence first, but in this case I did. Uh, I killed my first dragon with a blunt sword and the engine block of a 1977 Volvo station wagon. It was my mom's car. I don't think she'll ever forgive me, but in my defense, that dragon was a real asshole. So uh, John goes to the local Ren Fair and he's doing the sword fighting thing. He's there with some friends. He's home from college. Uh, his life is kind of falling apart. And John's the kind of guy who feels like he was born in the wrong century. He feels like he should have been born, uh, you know, in the noble ages of knights and, and dragons and damsels being distressed and doing of dare and all that. Um, so he goes to the Ren Fair on the weekend with his friends and he's doing the sword fighting competition thing. And he ends up uh, fighting this guy named Krejcik, who, as I've mentioned, is a, uh, is a, uh, a tax attorney apparently, you know, CrossFit guy uh, who takes on the persona of Krejcik the Destroyer on the weekends. Uh, and just goes around not the, very chivalrous himself. No, super not chivalrous. Uh, you know, the kind of guy who uh, cheats whenever he can and, and uh, just kind of a jerk about the entire process. And uh, he's fighting Krejcik and about halfway through the fight, uh, Krejcik turns into a dragon and uh, realizes that his cover is blown and so uh, Krejcik is displeased and starts killing people and John has to deal with it. Um, and uh, he deals with it by driving his mom's Volvo into Krejcik's face. Uh, and that sets off a whole chain of events that ends up with John uh, joining this organization called Nightwatch, which uh, secretly exists to protect the mundane world from the mythic world. And John is, uh, he's out of it at the, I mean, he, uh, he, he drives his, uh, his Viking uh, weapon, the Volvo, <laughs> into, yeah. uh, which, which has, which does play into later in the book, um, yeah. the fact that it is a Volvo, um, is, uh, and he wakes up in this place called uh, Mundane Actual. Um, what is this? What's going on? Right. What's the pitch so they make to him? Yeah, I try to explain that the world is not the world that he thinks it is. Um, the thing about Monday and Actual, in order to impact these mythic creatures, you have to uh, exist in uh, medieval times, essentially. Um, my idea was basically, you know, what if living that Renfair life uh, actually made you able to, to live in this fantasy world? Um, people who, the, you, this, this is not MHI. You know, you can't just uh, walk up to a dragon and shoot him uh, because a bullet will have no impact on him because it's not a modern thing. He's not a modern thing. Uh, you have to have a sword to fight a dragon. And not only that, the sword has to be carried by somebody who is in touch with their mythic identity and is not corrupted by the modern world. So you have to, you know, eschew all of the, the modern convenience. You have to, 
not drive a car, you can't have a cell phone, uh, you have to eat period food and dress in period clothes. And, uh, you know, that enables you to interact with the mythic world in a way that, that the rest of, of the world can't. Um, mundane actual as a place is essentially um, an isolation chamber for, for these elites, for these mythics. Uh, it's a place where, because once you are in the real world fighting these things, uh, you have to then sort of uh, decompress. It's like going to a very deep pressure. You have to very slowly build your way back up. Uh, and mundane actual exists to assist that process um, so that after they are at the Ren Fair fighting the dragon, uh, they're able to recharge, but they have to do it by very slowly uh, decorrupting themselves and, and descending through MA uh, to get back to their mythic identity, basically. And it's a, I mean, it's it's kind of like a, like a secret organization place too, you know, like a volcano secret headquarters kind of place. Yeah, it's under a lake. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. It's actually in uh, an old missile silo. I don't know uh, if they have these in the Southeast, but out here in the Midwest, we have old Nike missile sites. Uh, one of the offices that I worked in uh, was built on top of um, an ICBM silo. Uh, and if you knew the right person, which I did not, uh, some of those sort of urban legend things, but there was you know, a silo underneath the office complex. And it was possible uh, if you knew the right people to get down there and do a little tour, but you had to go in groups because there was no cell service down there. And if the door closed and no one knew you were there, there was literally no way for anyone to find out that you were there. Uh, you were gone. So it, it's, it's built in one of those. Um, and those go very deeply into the earth. So it's under a lake uh, in the Midwest somewhere. Yeah. And there are other, there's, um, you, there's some creepy things down there. There's some uh, some leftovers from other mythos. Um, the janitors, for instance, your feral yeah. janitors are great. Yeah, the feral janitors, they are leftover from Lovecraft. Um, and they're just creepy, man. They're, they're uh, how do you describe these guys? They are, um, they, they have, uh, they're a host organism that exists as an octopus that comes out of their hand, right? And they're just kind of insane. Uh, and, uh, they say inappropriate things like they try to wash you by by rubbing the octopus gently over your head uh, and excreting certain chemicals to, to make the process un, you know, pleasant for you and stuff. Yeah, they're just they're jerks. <laughs> John, John did not want a bath from the John therapy. wanted nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so he's cleaned and part and at the Ren Fair were these other people. One of them was uh, this guy Clarence. Um, who was wounded, who was the, a nightlight figure, um, mm -hmm. who had been sent to deal with Krychek, right? Right, yeah. Nightwatch has the ability uh, to detect anomalies in the real world. And so they know something's happening at, at this Renaissance Fair, but they don't know what it is. And so when Krychek manifests in his dragonly gloriousness, uh, they're there to step in. Um, so John immediately, you know, He's saved from certain doom by this rogue character who's she's bouncing around the night, the dragon and uh, a knight and a mage. And the healer didn't show up for some reason, but uh, everyone else is there. And uh, he's going to run away, but then he realizes that things are not going well for the heroes. That's when he turns around and, and heads back. So, uh, and, and does his thing with the Volvo. Um, 
but yeah, Clarence is the knight, and there's uh, Timbo, who's the mage, uh, and Bethany the rogue, and that's everybody in the original thing. There's also and these sound like, I mean, these sound like adventure gaming characters, is and and that is deliberate, um, and because. Why? Because adventure gaming is partakes of this mythos world as well, or yeah, it's it's a way for people to interact with the fantastic world that they that they dream about. Uh, not all of the characters like are necessarily gamers, but a couple of them are, um, and or were prior to to joining Nightwatch. And John is one of them. Uh, and uh, basically, like. This book, in a lot of ways, is all of the stuff that I love. It's Renaissance Fair stuff. It's uh, SCA and uh, HEMA uh, fighting. It's D&D. It's World of Warcraft. It's PG Wodehouse a little bit. Um, and it's all sort of mashed together into a, a hero adventure story. Yeah. There's a lot of cool quips and, uh, and comebacks um, that one might, uh, uh, you know, I it's a little meta, but not really meant to be a humorous book. It's it's a book with it's an adventure, uh, contemporary fantasy with humor in it. I would say. Yeah, it's an adventure story that's that's funny as opposed to a funny story that happens to be an adventure. Um, There's like, some great stuff in there. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I when everyone else's dad was reading them, like Winnie the Pooh or whatever it is that dads read kids. My dad was reading me P.G. Wodehouse from a very young age. Uh, and so I grew up on Monty Python and, and Black Adder uh, to an almost dangerous extent. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that kind of like witty banter is uh, is my is my part and parcel. So uh, John meets this woman named Esther um, who runs the place. What's her last name? I'm... Esther McRae. And what uh, and the meaning of them is is pretty cool because she is trying to sort of it it has a alice in wonderland quality in that um she's trying to figure out what mythos he might be part of why was he able to do this uh what, what's going on there yeah well um, part of it is like i said you know these mythic creatures can't be impacted or can't be affected by modern materials um and so the fact that he was able to drive his car through this guy's head through this dragon's head and kill it shouldn't happen and so Esther spends all this time trying to figure out if it's a magical car or if uh, John is somehow uh, made some kind of contract with the genie or maybe he it was involved in a, you know, a ritual with, you know, Presbyterians or something. And he's trying to figure out like she's she's trying to figure out like, you know, how this was possible. And the entire time, John's like, no, the thing that isn't possible is this freaking dragon in a soccer field. Like, what are you talking about? What what? you know, which, where'd the car come from? The car came from, it's a Volvo, you know? It's from a used car lot, what's wrong with you? And so that sort of transition into the, into the unreal world uh, and the resistance of, of people like Esther saying, you know, this is impossible, this shouldn't be a thing that's real, uh, all while trying to explain that, you know, you know, dragons are real, genies are real, werewolves are not real. And she makes a big point of that and there's a reason for that. But uh, that, that sort of like blows his mind. And Mundane Actual has uh, some other aspects as well that are, that are cool. There's, um, there's, you mentioned that they have the ability to detect anomalies. Um, and they've sort of been reconstituted in after World War II, right? There's a, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Estra was originally part of a, a Nightwatch-like team in World War II. 
And uh, the, the device that they use to detect anomalies is called the anomaly actuator. Uh, and it is uh, the product of a, a Manhattan Project style or sized um, project during World War II uh, that was used to, they were trying to, trying to affect the unreal world directly. They were trying to, to weaponize it essentially. And uh, that didn't work out. And basically um, Esther bought the thing off of, off of surplus or stole it or something. Uh, and uh, so her history is a little unclear. She doesn't appear like she's old enough to be a World War II vet. She looks like she's in her, her mid forties, but uh, doesn't talk a lot about, about her past or, or where she's from or anything. But. Uh, some of that stuff was, later on. Yes, branded the place, which was cool. Um, people yeah. might watch patches. And, yeah. <laughs> In the 80s, she got big into brand identity and, and logo management. And uh, she came up with like a team song and stuff. Everyone's like, don't mention the song. <laughs> we don't want to have to sing the song, please. Um, but yeah, she got big into, into that kind of thing. And uh, very early on, John, like Nightwatch is a dumb name. Every time you say, say Nightwatch to somebody, you have to explain that it starts with a K. You know, it's Nightwatch with a K at the beginning. Uh, and she's like, don't, don't make fun of the name. I spent a lot of money on consultants trying to figure out, you know, a really good name for this thing. So, uh, yeah, yeah, she's, she's uh, on board going forward in the, in the perfectly 80s kind of way. But. So let's talk about some of the other characters as well. Um, so... The reason John is, is sort of in touch with this mythic world is because he's just he's just been in college and he's sort of disconnected from his life. He's come back. He's a senior, um, and uh, he's been hanging out with some of his high school friends, like Chessa and Eric. Who are they? Yeah. So John's life has kind of fallen apart, right? He was he grew up in this kind of small town in the middle of nowhere, uh, and uh, went away to college and left his girlfriend, Chessa, uh, and left his friend behind, Eric. And he got to college and then things kind of fell apart and he came home and uh, he's sort of disconnected from, from the world, but uh, things kind of start up again. So Chessa's his ex-girlfriend. Chessa is, uh, has always wanted to be an elven princess and uh, she spends more money on her, her annual cosplay for her elven princess costume uh, than you know, most brides spend on their on their wedding gowns, and she goes to the Ren Fair and does the archery competition, and uh, that kind of um, aspirational dream fulfillment is the only thing that really she and John had in common. Otherwise, you know, John's kind of an idiot, and she's very you know on task kind of person, and uh, and so they they broke up, but now he's back in town and. Uh, they're, they're kind of in the same social circle, so they keep ending up in the same places, and they end up going to the Ren Fair together. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the awkward conversation that's sort of like, and books have, you know, tension and, and, and adventure and, you know, danger and all the various things that cause tension in, a, in a, a story. I like some of my tension to come from awkwardness, just plumb straight. You know, this is people I don't want to be around, and we have to be talking about weather and stuff, so. Um, but John's got that kind of Tobey Maguire, you know, teenage yeah. character or, or young man character kind of feel yeah. to him. Yeah, which and all of that goes back to Bernie Wooster. Like that's he's the same kind of like um, sort of disconnected youth, not really sure what he's going to do with himself, just trying to avoid the responsibility of the real world uh, and ends up, you know, the responsibility of the real world ends up being 
would have been a lot easier than what he actually ends up with, is, which is fighting dragons. You know, that, that's a lot more complicated process there, buddy, than, you know, filling out spreadsheets. But, and Chessa well, is, is aware of this as well. And she's brought to, uh, to Mundane Actual and she's all in. Oh, yeah. No, she's from minute one. Like, as soon as, as Esther's like, you know, you could become the elven princess you always wanted to be, she, she signs in the dotted line, like, immediately. Yes. Whereas John is still like, I have a business plan. I have a 401k. And, you know, I, I got things that I want to do with my life other than whatever this nonsense is. You people are all crazy. And so sort of she's the one who's just like, yes, I'm there. I'm on board. And, you know, she gets her magical powers almost immediately. Uh, she, her eyes begin to glow. And uh, she very much becomes this uh, elven warrior princess that she's always wanted to be very, very quickly. Takes to it like a like fish in water. Um, whereas John, it's much more of a process for John. Like he, he thinks he knows what he's, he wants to be and then discovers that's not what he's capable of uh, and ends up, you know, going through this process of I was this and now I'm this and trying to figure things out. So, so what about Eric, his best buddy? From, because Eric plays a part in the story. Yeah, uh, Eric is uh, a fantasy writer in the way that uh, Thunderstorm is a bat. Right, he's. This is an opportunity for me to make fun of, of myself and and the uh, my chosen career that, that provides me a living. Um, he is. Uh, he's a guy who writes too many adjectives uh, in his stories, and his books are pretty much just maps. Uh, and you know, the plot is just moving around on the map and stuff, which is where you know some writers have to start. Uh, we can often we can joke that maybe that's that's kind of what Tolkien did in a lot of cases, um, but. Oh, yeah, any a fantasy writer has started. Oh yeah, oh no, I I've, I've got my share of maps. Believe me, uh, they're they're all here. Um, but yeah, that's sort of sort of uh, who Eric is, and he's a little um, oh, he's he's a little uh, disconnected from the Ren Fair thing. Like he goes to the Ren Fair because uh, it's an opportunity to drink publicly. Like he's that guy. Uh, he goes in a bard's uniform and and stuff, but uh, he doesn't really do the traditional Ren Faire thing. He's just there for the, the the drinking in a field kind of thing, which, you know, that's that's not mock drinking in a field. I've, I've done my share of drinking in fields. Uh, grew up in the South. So, yeah. so um, one of the things that I, that is fun in the book is, um, is, and I don't think it's giving anything away, is, is there is a, a point where there's a there's a, a doppelganger of Eric and and John is able to tell them apart because the doppelganger um, doesn't uh, just it, well you explain it <laughs> yeah he just says what he means he doesn't apply a bunch of adjectives to it he just says yes the sky here is quite blue as opposed to the sky cerulean and slate covered from horizon to horizon in stars innumerable you know that, that kind of thing. Uh, which is a lot of Eric's dialogue is, is something along those lines. Um, so yeah, he's like, that, that's not Eric. Who is this, you know, this creature that has invaded my friend's body. This is not Eric at all. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of, you know, one of the tells. So um, the other thing about uh, Monday Nashville is there's, there's these portals to, to places where you the characters who are part of Nightwatch and other other teams recharge. 
What are these personal domains? Like Clarence has one where he really has to go after he gets beat up by Krychek. Right. Yeah. So the idea um, when you when you're becoming your mythic self, right? You have to uh, essentially recharge your batteries after you've been exposed to the real world because uh, it kind of corrupts you, um, and so you have to decontaminate and. You do that by achieving your mythic ideal. So you have some domain that you go to to recharge and that gives you your powers. So Clarence is, is a knight. And when you first meet Clarence, well, actually the second time you see Clarence, he's been beaten up and uh, he's in the hospital and, and uh, is they're, they're concerned that he might never fight again, but he's probably gonna survive. Uh, and so he needs, uh, John needs to sort of take over for him. And Clarence is like, well, let's go to my domain and I'll train him. Uh, and so you meet uh, Clarence's buddy is this dragon named Kyle. Uh, all of the dragons have K names, I just realized. I didn't even focus on that. Anyway, so there's Kyle, the dragon. And in the real world, Kyle is kind of this big cartoony, goofy puppy dog-like like character. Uh, but once you transition into Clarence's domain, Kyle becomes this sort of ravaging dragons, sort of, you know, the prime dragon. He breathes fire and he flies through the night sky and uh, he chases, chases uh, Clarence back to his, his castle. So Clarence has his castle and basically when he's in his domain, he uh, trains, he has feasts at his castle and he fights a dragon. That's his identity. He is identified by, or he is defined by uh, this conflict with the dragon. Uh, so that's the kind of knight he is. He's the kind of knight who fights dragons. And that's his domain. Um, whereas later on, John, when he goes to try to figure out what his domain is, um, it's basically a cabin in the woods uh, that's surrounded by this nightmarish forest that it's always nighttime. And uh, there are all these bizarre creatures. And, and he figures out that his thing is he has to uh, be brave in the face of, of overwhelming fear. Um, because so, who, your domain is determined by who you are as a mythic being. As a mythic character, yeah, right. Yeah, like the, the healer uh, ends up uh, going back and, and uh, being in the presence of the divine. Because, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but uh, in the Old Testament, when you uh, were in the presence of the divine, your face would glow. And there would be a, a period of time afterward when your face would glow and people would know that you, are, uh, that you had been in the presence of, of uh, divinity. And uh, the cleric in, in this series, St. Matthew, uh, has the same thing going on. He goes into his domain, and when he comes out, his face is glowing. And angels in this world are essentially cancerous, right? Because they, they're this microwave oven that's, that's just pumping out divinity all the time. And so when there are angels in the real world, they have to wear kind of like a deep sea uh, diving uniform, uh, because otherwise they'd be infecting everyone around them with uh, a certain malignant divinity. Um, and so, uh, for you can't handle your body, can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth quite literally. Well, we talked with Lewis, you know, talked about that a lot. When he talked about there being angels in the real world, you think that would be a great thing until you actually experience something that is so good that it sort of dissettles the world around it. Uh, from the space trilogy, he talks whenever an angel appears in the space trilogy, uh, it, it, it's almost a nightmarish experience because it's it's so outside of our understanding of, of good and evil. It's just pure good uh, that it's a, a frightening thing to be around. Uh, so anyway, uh, 
but yeah, it sort of powers your, uh, going into these domains powers your mythic identity. Uh, and the, the domain itself is formed by, um, by your mythic identity. You have to go through a kind of a hero's journey to, to get there and to, uh, to create the, the domain. So you talk about, you were mentioning the, the healer who was, who's Matthew. Um, what about uh, some of the other characters that, that John meets, such as Timbo? Uh, yeah. Timbo is, uh, Timbo represents kind of an ancient power that predates, he predates Nightwatch by like centuries. Um, and his, his domain is this place called Gravehome. Uh, it's basically this, the, the belt. Uh, and when he's there, he turns into this, um, half man, half elephant, giant creature. Uh, and so there's a lot of like, he, he is a mythology that exists outside. He is his own mythology, right? And he exists outside of, of sort of our understanding of mythos. But uh, in Nightwatch, he's just the mage. He's the fireball guy. Um, but he has no experience with the modern world. So sort of more recent inductees into Nightwatch will sometimes talk about missing coffee or blue jeans. And he has no like concept of, of I suppose he would know what coffee is, but uh, you know he has no concept of 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 what those things are or how they function. Uh, and so that's sort of part of the you know the the tension between them is is uh, you know here's a car, here's another car. Is that it's not a thing that that he has any experience with? It's just this this terrifying thing that 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 runs in. So, but yeah. But Matthew, he's from our, he, he misses his blue jeans. He misses his blue jeans. Yeah. Matthew is, uh, he's, he's a, he's a recent addition. Um, I haven't gotten too much into, into Matthew's background and history, but, uh, I think he'd be, he'd be kind of a, a fun guy. He's kind of a stoner dude. He's, he's essentially, um, you know, the dude abides, but a saint. Uh, and, uh, he's, he's kind of, always a little bit like, you know, not panicking. It's okay, man, it's cool. Healer's here, everything's fine, uh, even when it's not. Uh, and he keeps not showing up when he's supposed to be there. And the original, you know, when, when Krejcik the dragon shows up, um, it's a problem because the healer didn't, didn't show up. He was supposed to be there, but he forgot something back at home. And so he, he went back to get it. Uh, and so, you know, he doesn't show up until after all the, the bad things have happened. Which is, so, so what happens when John goes back to, because uh, he gets the, he has to go back to real, to our reality for a while. Right. Um, what's that like for him now that he knows all this exists and he's sort of becoming part of it? Well, it's, it's interesting because his initial thought was, you know, this is great. You know, everything's going to be, I'm going to be a hero now. This is wonderful. But uh, when he goes back to, to normal reality, he goes back to his parents' house. Um, he realizes that the things that left him feeling disconnected in the real world are even more real now. Um, he's, he's sharply aware that not only does he no longer feel that he belongs here, he literally no longer believe, belongs here. And things that he took for granted, basic technology, stops working for him. You know, he pulls out his cell phone and it's turned into a, a tarot deck. He starts, tries to start his car and uh, it just doesn't function. Uh, he rides a bicycle and it falls apart around him. Um, he tries to call Eric because Eric disappears after uh, the Krejcik thing. And he, he tries to get a hold of Krejcik and, and uses the phone and he gets a hold of something, uh, but it's not Eric. Uh, it's, it's some haunted voice that, that uh, 
follows him around for a while. So uh, it's, if anything, an even more isolating event. Like he, he expected to be able to go home and be like, I'm a hero now. Uh, but in actuality, it's uh, things are just... <laughs> yeah. Because, and it's, 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 he has to, the rules are now that, that he is part of this mythical world that's inside himself and he has to do things that follow those rules. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's really and, cool. Because he yeah, has to he's, sort of think inside that box, right? Right. He has to think inside that box. And not only that, um, he has to try to, like that world begins to bleed into the world that he's, he's existed in prior to that. Like, you know, there, there are serious consequences for his parents uh, to have, a knight living under their house, under their roof. Um, and, uh, you know, now he has to deal with, with Chessa and uh, has to figure out where Eric is. And all the while, uh, strange things keep happening to him that he thought he would be excited about. But when they actually start to happen, like when, you know, a tornado turns into a storm, a storm harpy that then chases you through your living room, not so great. Not, not the life you were expecting, uh, and yet here we are. So um, we'll talk about a little bit about the bad things, the uh, the bad guy portion of things. What's what is uh, he up against? Well, it, it all goes back in part to to that that Volvo, right? Because that shouldn't have happened, and it that sets into motion. Uh, a number of other events. Uh, someone is trying to get at Nightwatch. Someone is trying to either corrupt Nightwatch or take advantage of it. And uh, it all started at this, at this Ren Fair. And so it's kind of up to John to figure out, uh, John and his friends to figure out like what happened. Uh, Eric goes missing, they have to go find him. Uh, they do eventually find him. Hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler. They find him in a bookstore in a mall which is how you know you're really in like a not real world because that doesn't exist. Uh, not a thing, not a thing. But um, so he's, he, you know, he's trying to, to figure out who it is that is, that is trying to take over Nightwatch. And, uh, and it's this doppelganger keeps showing up and putting on his friend's faces and attacking them. Uh, the same doppelganger attacks Chessa and her domain. So the next time that, Chessa and John are in the same place. Chessa tries to kill him because she thinks that he's the doppelganger. Uh, and so, you know, and, and of course they, they end up back at a, at a Renaissance fair, a big one, a statewide one. Uh, and it all sort of goes downhill from there. Yeah. And we talked to, I mean, you mentioned the cover before um, and it's, it's really pretty. This is a yeah. Tom Lockwood cover. Um, I think it, it really makes the book. It does. Yeah. I was really happy with that with that, uh, that cover. When, when I got it, as soon as the contract was done, uh, Jim sent me the, co the cover over and I was like, winning. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great cover. I've, I've followed Todd since one of my early books was with Pyre and he did some work with, with Lou Anders there. And I saw those covers and was like, Oh yeah, that's, that's making it. You know, that's, uh, that's the cover that I, that I want. Uh, and I got it. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, I mean, it's a really cool feeling world. It's, it's very different from just a monster hunting sort of uh, world in that the, the characters are constrained by, by this, this mythos in a way that, you know, they can't just uh, blow things away with, with nuclear weapons or whatever the heck, um, unless they somehow mythologize them, right? Oh, fire, fireball is still a thing. Um, fireball is still a thing. Yeah. So what, but not, 
how do, you, how do you see the world? Um, you were talking to me earlier about the, the way the world sort of folds out um, and there's more to it. What? Yeah, there's, so there's a brief mention of this, but so uh, Nightwatch is specifically the fantasy version of it. Um, but there are teams that deal with all the various genres, uh, if I can use a publishing term. Um, so that there's a, there's a steampunk team and a, a science fiction team and, and all this stuff. Um, but uh, John is constrained to, to the, the one version of it, um, just the, the fantasy version. And it, that has so many consequences because you, you kind of have to, you know, uh, stop eating Twinkies and, uh, you know, stop using your phone and stuff. Um, so it, it really is, uh, th there's a lot to the world that, that, is, that I've kind of got in my head. Um, there's a World War II version of it uh, that Esther deals with, uh, but, uh, so much of it is, is it exists in potentiality, but doesn't actually, there, there aren't any like stories written in those, in those places yet. There could be. There might be. So yeah. what, are, what are you working on? What's going on? Right. So, uh, Nightwatch was not the book that I was supposed to be writing when I wrote Nightwatch. I had finished a trilogy and, uh, my agent and I got together and, uh, agreed that I should, do something in brand. So I was working on this book called Wraith Bound. Uh, and I don't know, when you get to the end of a fantasy trilogy that has like 30 characters in it, you kind of want to break. And so the, the Wraith Bound pitch was, I want there to be one guy, uh, but he has to have someone to talk to. So let's have a dead person bound to his soul. Cool, Wraith Bound, that's the book. Uh, and it's kind of built out from there, but I, I'm like six drafts into that. But Nightwatch, sort of fell into my head one morning and I wrote it without telling Joshua, uh, my long suffering agent about it at all and sort of submitted it. It was like, here's a book, enjoy. Um, which he did and it, it you know, has, has worked out. Uh, so Wraithbound is a thing that's still in drafts. Um, I'm already contracted for a sequel to Nightwatch, um, which is tentatively called Val Hellions. Uh, and that's outlined and uh, about a third written probably. Uh, so I'm, I'm, sort of switching back to that. Uh, I stopped writing everything while I was doing the promotion and stuff for Nightwatch. Uh, but I'm, I'm kicking back into Valhalla's after this. Cool. cool. Well, the book out at booksellers everywhere right now is Nightwatch by Tim Akers. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for talking with us about this um, really, really cool blend, uh, wonderful um, conception uh, of a book. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it. Like I said, this is kind of my core book. It's a, it's a book that um, I wrote because I wanted to read it. And uh, that's the only way I know how to write a book. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's a fun adventure book. It's not, you know, a diatribe on the nature of reality or anything. It's, it's a book you're going to enjoy reading, just kind of a shocking entertainment. Yeah. yeah. It's got some depth too. It's really cool. It's a great book. Oh, yeah. And thanks for talking to us, Tim. Thank you, sir. Been, been a pleasure. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore, 
must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. System Defense HQ. City of Columbia, Beowulf. Beowulf System. Corey McAvoy watched the clock. Two more minutes until Mycroft launched, he thought, and felt a distant sort of sympathy for the thousands of Sollies who were about to die. Still, he hadn't come looking to invade their star system, and his head jerked up as an alarm shrilled. He'd never heard that particular alarm, even in a training exercise, and his eyes snapped towards the master status board. What the? He froze, staring in disbelief at the readouts. Sir? Dunstan Myers began, then stopped and drew a deep breath. Sir, we just lost Mycroft. How? The single word question sounded preposterously calm in McAvoy's own ears, and Dunstan Myers shook her head. I don't know, sir. We just lost the FTL feed from the master platforms. They were about. Excuse me, ma'am. Captain Chasnikov, one of Dunstan Myers' assistants, said. What? The ops officer half snapped. Ma'am, according to Skywatch, some of the ghost riders picked up grazer fire right on top of the platforms. Grazer fire? Dunstan Myers repeated. That deep inside the limit? That's what Skywatch says, ma'am, Chesnikov said, and McAvoy and Dunstan Myers looked at one another in shock. Then the CNO shook himself. Right this minute, how they did it matters a hell of a lot less than the fact that they did it, he snapped. Block ship impellers to full readiness now. They may adjust position on thrusters, but their wedges do not go active without my order. Yes, sir. Dunstan Myers nodded sharply, pointing at the comm, and Chasnikov started speaking urgently to Cassandra Defense. In the meantime, Cheryl, McAvoy went on, upload the targeting queue directly to the pods. Sir, that's going to take at least another 13 or 14 minutes. We'll have to start from scratch, Dunstan Myers pointed out. And without Mycroft, accuracy's going to be poor even for Apollo. It'll be a hell of a lot better than no accuracy at all, McAvoy grated. Yes, sir. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a flagon of dragon wine and some dandelions for the unicorn. Plus, thanks and praise for Tim Akers, author of Night Watch. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.